0: Hello everyone, this is PJ Thumb. This year, Singapore commemorates the 200th anniversary of Sir Stamford Raffles' arrival, which also marks the beginning of the dispossession of the Indigenous people from their land. The government is keen to highlight the former, yet ignores the latter. Clearly, colonialism and its legacy is something that is in urgent need of interrogation in Singapore. I spoke on that topic at the University of Cambridge on 24th January 2019. The following is a recording of that lecture and accompanies our latest episode of Political Agenda, in which we examine the Bicentennial and question how much Singapore has decolonized. I encourage you to listen to both. Enjoy! Thank you very much. I don't like to talk sitting down. Uh, the select committee was a real tough time for me. <laughs> uh, yeah. I like to... Uh, you don't have a um, handheld... Okay... Actually last week I got a call from a BBC reporter trying to understand why Singapore is celebrating our bicentennial right our uh, 200 years of our colonization and you know she really couldn't understand why uh, almost alone among former colonial countries we celebrate our colonization like it's something to be proud of and you know, I, I explained to her, right, to understand that we actually need to understand this how history is being used and deployed in Singapore. And more to the point, the, the political economy of the use of history in Singapore. And the turning point that is our separation from Malaysia in 1965. See, prior to that point, the Singapore government's opponent was colonialism. And it was a a popularly elected and and popularly responsible government. And in seeking independence, they understood that Singaporeans saw themselves as Malayan, right? Uh, A strong, essential part of the Singaporean identity was that we were Malayan. And by Malaya, of course, I mean the historical and geographical Malaya from Singapore to Perlis, and maybe including Patani and the southern um, Thai Malay states. So accordingly, the elected government of Singapore back then conceived of our national identity on those terms and emphasized the Malayan aspect of our identity as part of a reunification campaign with the rest of Malaya. But after separation, for political reasons, it needed to justify this sudden self-separation of Singapore from the rest of Malaya, right? you remember that Singaporeans voted overwhelmingly in a referendum, a rather rigged referendum, but overwhelmingly nevertheless, to join Malaysia as an equal sovereign part, and yet when we left, only three people knew about it, you know, until the the day before. So, in order to justify this, right, that's where we see the need to reinterpret Singapore history in a different way, to help us become, to build a national identity that were Singaporean and separate from our historic Malayan identity, which had evolved over the decades, to create a Singaporean nation where none had existed before, to create a Singaporean nationalism separate from our Malayan roots, our Malayan heritage. Now to understand nationalism, right, in this context, in the context of the long 20th century, let me set the stage a bit. Nationalism, I think, few would doubt, Dispute that it's the greatest force of the 20th century and indeed remains so today. See, between the end of the Roman Republic and the end of World War I, the default mode of governance in the world was the multinational empire. An emperor holds what land that they can, uh, you know, they can hold on to by force or otherwise. But at the end of World War I, right, you see the breakup of all these multinational empires and the rise of the nation state. <coughs> and the marriage of this um, powerful force of nationalism with the idea of the state. And for the first time, we have this idea that every state should, have, should be uh, aligned to the nation, and every nation should have its own state. And this powerful force actually led to the liberation of a lot of oppressed people throughout the 20th century. And at the same time though, right, the flip side of this is it became a tool of oppression. Because no matter how small your nation is, there's always going to be someone who doesn't fit in. right? Someone who conceives of your nation in a different way. Or someone who just doesn't want to be part of your nation. Even though they have lived in that same patch of land that you're demarcating as the state. They, their families may have been there for centuries, but they don't want to be part of your nation. And so what happens to them? Right? And if you're going to say that every nation must be the same as every state, then logically these people must be ignored or even silenced or even excluded from the nation-state. So the unscrupulous find that it is easy to weaponize this idea, To right? weaponize this logic, and to mobilize people within the nation in fear of the people who don't want to be part of the nation, who are different, who don't fit and say, those people are the enemy. Those people are a threat to you, right? Those people are a threat to your national identity. Therefore, they're a threat to the nation. Therefore, they're a threat to the people. Therefore, they're a threat to our existence. Therefore, that legitimizes the exclusion or even the oppression, or even the murder and genocide of those people. And so the big trend of the 20th century is liberation through nationalism. But the flip side of that is oppression by nationalism, and we see that throughout the world, right? The Armenian Genocide, the Holocaust, Palestine, and the trend in our 20th century history is towards homogeneity within states. You see the breakup of the three big multinational states in Europe: the USSR, Yugoslavia, Czechoslovakia, and... In the world today, you see nationalism being deployed to justify all sorts of atrocities by people manipulating that for their purposes. The Rohingya is a good example, right? Burma has, you know, Myanmar has so many different ethnicities. Why is it this one group is singled out as it's somehow an existential threat to the state and they must be uh, driven out, right, from their traditional homelands and a genocide must be conducted, right? And all this is justified because by saying that they are not Burmese, they are not of Myanmar, right? And that then justifies rape and murder and torture and dispossession. Indonesia justifies its occupation of West Papua in the same way by saying West Papua is Indonesian. And therefore people in West Papua who don't want to be part of Indonesia are a threat to our state. And that justifies, again, the murder, the the torture that takes place in West Papua all the time. So it's the same rhetoric you see with the Malay provinces of Thailand, right? to a lesser extent, but you know, no less egregious, Malaysia, the treatment of indigenous people in Sabah and Sarawak, right? or even here and in the US, right? Trump, Nigel Farage, the debate around Brexit. These are not historical anomalies. This is part of the trend of our history towards homogenizing the nation-states. So, hundred years after the end of World War One, we are living in a sort of end time, end game. One hopes of the era of nationalism, taken to its horrific logical conclusion. You know, and. If I can insert at this point, you know, a question I get a lot is, you know, hey, you argue for democracy, but laying so hot. Look how democracy is empowering these sort of extremists, right, to mobilize a, a majority of the population against a minority of the population. But of course, it is not limited to democracy, right? If you look at China, maybe the one country that has the power and the resources to have a multinational state. There's, they've got a million Uyghurs in concentration camps forcing them to eat pork and go, go, undergo re-education. Why, right? These people are not threats to the state, but they are part of the, the strategy of otherization, right? And the fear, the fear of the other. And so Singapore, in this context, is no different, right? Think of how when people disagree with the People's Action Party, they you know, you say it's something they don't like. And they respond, right, or their allies respond with, oh, this is un-Singaporean. This person is taking foreign money. Or this person is a foreign influence. Or this person is bringing in foreign ideas. Because that is in opposition to the national, right? And the PAP has a monopoly on national identity. We decide what is the people, the nation, and you are not. And therefore, we are justified in oppressing you, in excluding you, in detaining you without trial. You're a traitor to the people. So everyone who disagrees with the PAP is therefore, in this logic, a threat to the nation because the PAP decides national identity. Everyone who disagrees is an existential threat and must be dealt with with extreme prejudice. So in this context, right, we look at Singapore history. Now, to go back to 1946, following the end of the British occupation, Right, the British reoccupied Malaya in 1946, and by this time they had been reconciled to decolonization and to the inevitability of it, and they wanted to leave behind a stable post-colonial state that would also protect their economic and political and strategic interests. So to that end, they actually partitioned Malaya. Partition was big, you know, invoked back then, right? The partition of Palestine, the partition of India, the partition of Malaya, right? Create two different groups with the relentless logic of the nation-state, right? Put all the people of a certain nation in in one country and all people of a certain nation in the other. But of course, there's always, as we see in Palestine, India, you know, also lesser extent Malaya, right? The minority then gets oppressed. So with Malaya, the problem of course is that a unified Malaya that included Singapore was 43% Malay and 43% Chinese and this would undermine the position of the pro-British Malay elite. And so Singapore was excluded to preserve the dominance of that pro-British Malay elite. But this was insufficient, I mean, most of you know Singapore, right? This was insufficient to placate the Malay elite and their protest led to refashioning of the Malayan Union into the Federation of Malaya in 1948. But the point I want to make is this, that Singapore's emergence as a solitary entity was based on political calculation, racial calculation and division, setting a precedent of governance on the basis of racial division that actually plagues us, both successor states, to this day. And at the time, of course, many Malayans protested (coughs) that it was totally illogical to exclude Malaya's de facto capital from the rest of Malaya, right? Singapore was Malaya's economic and social and cultural capital. Before 1946, there was actually very little conception of Singapore itself as a separate state. It was part of the straight settlements, right? Malacca, Penang, Singapore. But there were very few barriers towards people moving up and down the peninsula. And indeed, many families would have, you know, been one part of Malaya. But if you were, you know, a kid and wanted to make it big, where do you go? Right? You go to the big city, the bright lights. And that's Singapore, Singapore was the intellectual, the social, the economic capital of Malaya, the richest country in Asia, the richest territory, second only to metropolitan Tokyo in 1930. So if you were a young man or a young woman who wanted to make it big, you go to Singapore. If you want higher education, only Singapore had a Raffles college. If you want to become a successful artist or writer or journalist or singer, you hit it for Singapore because that's where the cultural scene was, that's where the money was. Jusi for example quite famously came to Singapore from uh, Sumatra right Minangkabau came to Singapore because it was the land of butter and kopi susu right that's the conception of Singapore in people's minds it's where in Singapore you'd find the big multinationals the big artistic companies the theaters the movie industry right the big newspapers the publishers the schools so from the mid-18th century, Singapore was, is and still is the biggest city in Malaya, the richest city in Malaya. And between the wars, Singapore was this great place where all these intellectual currents that were influencing the world met in Southeast Asia, right? You had Indonesian nationalists fleeing Dutch, the Dutch crackdown in the 20s. You had Chinese radicals fleeing the... Um, Gomitang, the white terror crackdown coming to Southeast Asia, entering through the main port, Singapore. You had Islamic modernists coming back from the Hajj, entering Southeast Asia through Singapore, spreading that through you know from Singapore to the rest of the East Indies. You you had the first political party in Malaya in Singapore, for, founded by Muhammad Yunus, right? You had the Malay left uh, articulating all these new ways of organizing Malay society. Um, you have, you know, from all these different strands of thought in Singapore in, these, in this open intellectual environment, you arises so many intellectual, uh, interesting and competing ways of thinking and seeing the world and organising our societies. And so it's partly because of this that the conservative Malay elite are happy to see Singapore go because it's, Singapore has the Malay left, the Malay republicans, the people who see a very different conception of Malay society. Right? They don't want these ideas to disrupt their dominance of society. But of course, dividing Malaya into two disrupts a lot of traditional family ties. I mean, a lot of Singaporeans have relatives in Malaysia to this day. Right? And it breaks a lot of historic ties. So overturning this trauma of partition becomes the obsession of Singapore. And Singapore politicians reflect this. right? And this becomes the decisive issue of Singapore's independence from Britain. While the structures created out of this partition would not persist, this partition has had such long-lasting repercussions on the successor states. It establishes a precedent for political calculation rather than popular sovereignty as the basis for the planning and design of political and constitutional arrangements in Malaya and Malaysia. But for Singaporean politicians in the 50s, right, the practical issue is you could not be a serious politician without advocating for reunification. It was the most important issue that Singaporeans had. Right? At the time, you know, a survey in, I think, 57 found 90% of Singaporeans in favour, or I think it was 78% in favour, 12% neutral, and only 10% against reunification. So it's, it's the one thing that everyone, almost everyone could agree on, and it was so overwhelmingly popular. You know, the Nanyang Shangpao at the time said, uh, right, a family cannot be divided. That's the conception of reunification. And so to achieve this, what, the, what do these political parties do? What does the PAP do as part of its campaign? It has to emphasize Singapore's Malayan identity, that we are part of the family. That the conservative elite have nothing to fear from us. We are good, loyal Malayans too. Right? And at the PAP founding, for example, right, the party platform explicitly says right, uh, it explicitly stressed its objective of reunification with the Federation of Malaya and the creation of, and I quote, a democratic unitary government of Malaya based on universal adult suffrage of all those born in Malaya. And as a sign of its commitment on that day to the Malayan ideal, it had the two leading Malayan politicians on its stage with them, uh, sorry, not on the stage, but as guests there, uh, who spoke later Tan Ching Lok and of course Abdul Rahman. right? So we step forward a decade from there, right? The PAP have won power in 59. They formed the government, but internal divisions then split the party in 61 and the majority of the party leave and form the Barisan Socialists, and for the PAP rump, defeat in the 1963 elections appears imminent. And they need to win the 1963 elections. So what do they do? They can't turn around the economy overnight. They can't solve crime overnight. right? They can't build new housing overnight. They can't solve a lot of these issues overnight. But merger is something they can deliver almost overnight, if Tunku Abdul Rahman will agree. And so to achieve the approval of both the electorate of Singapore and the politicians in Kuala Lumpur it negotiates a Malaysia agreement based on political calculation rather than popular sovereignty. As the, you know, um, the final agreement uh, gives Singapore right, significant autonomy in Malaysia in exchange for less representation in the Dewan Rakyat, the Parliament. And limitations of the political rights of Singaporeans to just Singapore, whereas everyone else, Sabah, Sarawak and the rest of Malaya, they are equal citizens everywhere. Singapore is quarantined, right? It's kind of the—it was called the Ulster model, Northern Ireland, for you know those of you who are familiar with this situation here. The idea is quarantine Singapore politics in Singapore as a sort of sub-region uh, of Malaysia, and this was then endorsed by a rigged national referendum, basically in 1962, which presents Singaporeans with three alternatives, all of which are yes two of which are clearly worse than the, uh, the um, alternative that the PAP negotiated. So of course Singaporeans, you know, they want reunification and Lee Kuan Yew is saying this is the only way we're going to get it, they vote for it. So as a partition in '48 this places expediency, political expediency over the rights of citizens by prioritising a very short-term need, right, to quarantine Singapore's left-wing politics from the very right-wing politics of Kuala Lumpur. And this criticism, right, the criticism of the opposition at the time was you cannot form a country where a specific group of people have fewer rights than everyone else. It's not sustainable, right? Those people, us Singaporeans, are going to be really unhappy and the moment the English right, the moment we merge, they're going to start fighting for equal rights within the um, entire entity. And of course, he was right because the moment ink was dry, Lee Kuan Yew turns around and starts fighting for equal rights for Singapore within um, all of Malaysia. But the thing I want to point out is that throughout the merger campaign, the PAP uses Malayan identity as a cudgel. It uses nationalism as a cudgel. Right? They argue that if you are against the PAP, you are against merger. Never mind that no one was against merger, every party was for merger, the disagreement was over the exact form of merger. But what the PAP says is, if you are against the PAP, you are against merger, and if you are against merger, you're anti-Malayan, and if you're anti-Malayan, you're against the nation, and therefore you're a traitor, and therefore we deserve to terminate you. We must terminate you. It's our duty to terminate you with extreme prejudice. And this justifies the locking up. Of virtually all of Singapore's opposition politicians and activists in 63 in Operation Polstock. But of course, as the leaders of the Barasan predicted, the contradictions inherent in this very you know, short-term misarrangement of Malaysia become too big to bear, right? And so Singapore then stealthily separates from Malaysia in 65. So here's the problem. Imagine you're the PAP at this point in time, right? From 1954 to 1963, and until 1965, you have been fighting for merger, and you're emphasising that Singaporeans are good Malayans, we are all Malayan, you know, look at our heritage, look at our roots, we are Malayan, and suddenly you're out. What on earth do you say now? What is our national identity now? Right? And this was the problem facing the PAP after separation. it would be too much, way too hypocritical, way too far-fetched to turn around and suddenly say, oh, we are Singaporean. Because what the heck is that, right? No one has any conception of that. So what they do is they say, forget the past, forget history. Raju Minister of Culture, comes out and says, we are the new man, right? We have no history. Our history begins now. We are about modernity, looking to the future. Forget the past. And so any notion of Singapore being Malayan was thrown out the window right, to the point where I think a lot of people today don't even realise that we are part of Malaya, you know, the geographic historical identity, and they don't know the difference between Malayan and Malaysian, unfortunately. So, as long as the PAP were generally successful, and between you know, the mid-60s and the mid-70s, the PAP were a fantastically successful party ended really well, governed really well in general. Destroyed a lot of life, but governed, you know, got stuff done. Right. And, you know, I would say that's like the best government we ever had, the sort of mid-60s to to mid-late 70s. Right. But the problem is they ran out of ideas and momentum by the late 70s. And, you know, to summarise from the late 70s, they introduced a raft of policies, which on paper made sense, but because they kind of lacked the consultation, the, the, you know, they didn't really think a lot of things through, they rushed a lot of things out. Massive failures at the end of 70s. the 70s. The second industrial revolution, right? a housing policy, pension funds, changes to education, closure of NANTA, creation of you know, just English language education. And then that's even before you get to the very sort of racist family planning policies, the eugenicist you know, sterilization, the graduate mother scheme and all those crazy ideas. And the public, of course, are really, really unhappy. And in a massive shock to the PAP, they elect J.B. J. J. in 1981 as our first opposition politician since independence, and then followed by Cham See Tong in 84. So in response, the PAP introduced a whole host of changes. Right? They started rigging the elections, for example, changing the electoral system, gerrymandering, GRCs, town councils to punish voters who vote against the government, malapportionment nominated MPs, right? Um, and then the presidential system, new legislation to quell dissent, you know, the Legal uh, Professions Act, um, the uh, law which prevents uh, religious organizations, maintenance religious harmony. But what they also did was they returned to history, right? To use nationalism to quell dissent and build solidarity. So they concluded that part of the problem was that Singaporeans are not aware of history and therefore not grateful to the PAP for all that it had done and all that it had achieved, right? And Singaporeans didn't know enough about where we come from and what the PAP had done. So history had to be returned to the syllabus. But you still have this problem of framing. Any reasonable long-term view of Singapore history concludes that we are historically part of Johor, we're part of the Malay world, we're Malayan, we have a lot of links to the Malay speaking, you know, uh, sphere in South Malaysia, right? Historically, cultural, geog- geographically, we are part of the Malay world. How do you get past that? So what they, they chose was to go around that by emphasizing a different continuity, that of our colonial past. Right, and so you build a new arc of history that connects Raffles' late Enlightenment reformism, you know, with the, the laissez-faire liberalism of the Victorians, with the post-war imperialism of the colonial welfare state, all the way through to PAP authoritarianism and paternalism. Right. So the first textbooks that were issued to Singaporean students in '84 had a picture of the Raffles statue on the cover. And it frames Singapore history as eighteen nineteen to nineteen sixty-five. And the same year we had a big national exhibition to celebrate twenty-five years of Singapore's independence. Now, if you're paying attention, eighty-four minus twenty-five doesn't get you to sixty-five or even sixty-three, which is the year we became independent of the British Empire. Goes back to 59, which is the year of self-government. Right? So Today we kind of forgotten about fifty nine. This year's the 60th anniversary, this June. But this emphasises how flexible the framing is and can be, right? Never let the numbers get in the way of a good story. So these were manipulated to serve the process of creating a narrative that served the PAP's purposes. Now, the PAP's vote share continued to decline through the 80s and into the 90s. And so by the mid-90s, the early 90s actually, they said we need an even stronger historical narrative. We need to bring this into education. And we need to introduce this narrative which emphasizes the PAP's singular role in shaping Singapore history. And I think most Singaporeans in this room would have been educated in that system. It's called The Singapore Story. It was introduced in 1997. yeah. And I think the best example of how this changes, re- reframes the past is actually Racial Harmony Day, right? Racial Harmony Day takes place on the anniversary of the 1964 riots, right? You're all familiar with that. You've all had to celebrate it. If the riots happened in 1964, <laughs> if the happened in
1: 1964
0: what year was the first Racial Harmony Day? Anyone? Someone take a guess. What year? How 95. 95. 95? Close. 1997. Same year Singapore Story was introduced because it was part of the Singapore Story. You see, between 64 and 96, the PAQ stuck to the same stories. That we had never had a race riot. thought was an anti-colonial riot. That's why they accepted it. But the 64 riots were not caused by race. They were caused by agents provocateurs from Kuala Lumpur, employed by Sai Jaffa Alba or the Utusan Melayu or Amro itself, to come to Singapore to stir up trouble and cause riots. So they were political riots, not race riots. And the PP was very proud. You know, we don't have race problems in Singapore. And all of this is thrown out the window in, in ninety-seven, right? And instead, the day is refashioned into racial harmony day. To remind us that our relations in our society between races is extremely fragile and could go up in you know into you know blow up into riots at any moment. It creates fear, it creates a new enemy, it creates an otherization which the PAP can use to perpetuate its interpretation of history. See, by 1997, circumstances have changed. Malaysia is not the problem anymore. Right. Instead, the problem for the PAP is Singaporeans wanting more accountability, wanting more transparency, wanting more democracy in the government. Singaporeans could keep voting opposition in, you know, very inconvenient for the government, right? Even though it was what, one seat out of 75, and then two seats, and then four seats out of 75, somehow this is a disaster. So to buttress their conception of nationalism, they emphasise their interpretation of history and promote their own idea of the nation in a very... You know, excessive way through the education system, and racial harmony is created in that context to emphasise threats to the nation, to us, to the, to the people that they can then rally Singaporeans around, right? To emphasise the need for paternalism, the need for authoritarianism, to take care of us, because clearly we are not good enough to take care of ourselves. And hence also the framing here, the continuity between the British colonial state and the PAP, independent government. So this framing was adopted for political expediency to move us away from a previous framing of history to one which tries to build a very different vision of ourselves, not as Malayan, but as Singaporean. And that in and of itself, of course, it's not a bad thing. You know, as a country. You need to have a certain sense of collective identity, right? And imagine community, as Benedict Anderson says. All borders are arbitrary, right? So these are our borders, and we need to get along, and we need to have some group solidarity. That's fine. The problem arises when other views are forcibly excluded and even people are even oppressed for expressing other views. Because a singular narrative creates a lot of undesirable baggage, right? It carries a lot of assumptions with it, it privileges a specific viewpoint. It is used by the people who hold that perspective to promote their viewpoint. And it forces us to look at ourselves through a very narrow, limited framework. So, start with the most obvious thing, right? In the Singapore story, colonialism is seen fundamentally as a good thing. And this frankly is obscene. The idea that you can go to someone else's territory And take it over and subjugate them and force on them your conceptions of culture and civilization, and it's good for them, right? This is really offensive. And Singapore perpetuates that through our educational system. And this insidious sense of cultural superiority infects us, I think, in in two major ways. And one is it, it builds a sense of racial and cultural hierarchy in which we end up instinctively setting ourselves below white people and above brown people, you know, and it legitimates discrimination and how we treat people of different races and nationalities, and we see this sort of viewpoint, right, this misguided sense of superiority, you know, when in the, you know, there's a period When I first came to the UK in the early 2000s, when this was in vogue again, and America was going to invade Afghanistan and Iran and bring democracy to them, right? And, of course, Singapore, unfortunately, was a big supporter of that at the time. But, you know, the better part, two decades on, we realised the severe shortcomings of that, of that approach, of that mentality. But for us Singaporeans, it kind of illegitimates how we... Treat our foreign workers, for example, in particular our domestic workers, our construction workers. But it also legitimates the placing of Malays on a lower hierarchy from the Chinese population of Singapore, for example. Because
1: who got colonized? Who
0: got the benefits of civilization? Versus who are the people who came in as part of colonization? Versus, of course, who are the people who brought colonization, right? This very subtle, insidious mentality totally affects how we see our society today, how we conceive of ourselves, our nation, our identity. So if you frame colonisation in terms of modernity, right, in terms of progress, and you buy into this framing right, as, as the PAP, as the natural heir of the British colonial government, right, and the way they govern as the continuity, and as a good thing, then you accept that the PAP also has the right to impose civilization on all of us, and especially on the indigenous people, as part of continuing civilization, continuing colonization. And this impacts us in a very negative way. Franz Fanon, right, um, the medical doctor, leading anti-colonialist, he wrote his book where we observe that colonization actually has serious ramifications on the psyche of the people who are colonized, because they become stunted, mentally stunted, by a deep sense of degradation and inferiority. This narrative that colonization is a good thing has the impact of teaching and moulding the colonized and the colonizer into their respective roles of slave and master. And thus these myths help us establish a social order in which the colonised collaborate in their own subordination. So it's not for nothing that I've argued that Singapore continues to be governed along the same lines as a colonial state, right? We use a colonial constitution from 1954. We use colonial laws of subjugation, the Malayan emergency, right, which date from 48. We use colonial institutions, parliaments and laws. And I've talked elsewhere about how we use a colonial mindset to convince our citizens that we must be subjugated for our own good. The myths of vulnerability, of development, of meritocracy. Right? If you're interested in these, you can you know search online. I've got articles about these. But these have underpinned Singaporean governance since the uh, British period into modern day. And the PAP government governs us with these same fundamental assumptions that the British used to colonize us and maintain. Colonization and to create colonial subjects. We have been dehumanized. Now, this is the worst, but by no means the only implication of this uh, framework of history. Right? For example, there's a lot of other things. Uh, the Singapore story emphasizes modernity, right? free trade as a theme of its history, right? and that's very value laden. The neoliberal arc of Singapore's economy, of our society, Right, is very much pushed forward by this constant idea, more efficiency, more progress. Right? We need to uh, profit, we need to measure things, we need to have value, we need to um, create more wealth. At the same time, we also have this assumption of Singapore's insularity, that um, you know, our experience is exceptional, the specificity of our experience as a society. Right. Singaporeans, for example, it it argues that Singaporeans came to get rich, our ancestors came to get rich, right? They had no interest in the global revolutions of the interwar period, you know, they had no interest in these sort of broader movements that were happening in the world. All Singaporeans, all our ancestors cared about coming to get rich, right? Never mind that's only a very specific segment of us, of of our ancestors, right? There's many others who came for many different reasons. And as I mentioned, Singapore was very much the centre of all these currents of intellectual fervour, but, you know, it's um, utter nonsense, quite honestly. And there's also this argument that Singaporeans are entrepreneurs in business, but intellectually sterile. Again, right, historically, this privileges a very narrow point of view, right? It's only true for a, a very narrow group of people, the tycoons, the merchants, you know, and this. Uh, If you look at my book, Living with Myths, I think... uh, No, actually, yeah, a chapter about how this idea of the Chinese coming to Singapore and getting rich applies to a very, very tiny percentage of the population. For most of us, our ancestors were poor, and we are middle class and working class, and there's been no social mobility, right? So, um, you see how this reading of history, right? emphasizes, it justifies a conception of national identity that excludes opposition to the PAP. It excludes Singaporeans from connecting with transnational movements. It excludes us from drawing upon um, sources of universal solidarity, the UN Declaration of Human Rights, the Bandung Declaration, right, which ironically the PAP itself drew upon when it was in opposition. Right? But for the rest of us, drawing upon these things, drawing upon international movements makes us traitors to the nation. And this reading of history then justifies a lot of the policies which perpetuate these ideas. Singapore as a society, for example, was not a conservative place or a politically apathetic place in the 60s and 50s, right? Quite the opposite, right? You look at the literature of the time, you look at the newspapers, the time, they were very progressive, there was so much intellectual excitement, you know, but it has become more conservative. It has become more politically apathetic, partly because this reading of history justifies policies which perpetuate these ideas and then we have social policies that make us more conservative and make us more apathetic. Right? It justifies policies which punish liberalism, progressivism and political activism. And then worst of all, right, as Fanon described, we internalize these ideas and we say, yeah Singaporeans are politically apathetic. And we assume that that's the way, that's how we are, that's our identity, that's how the world works without querying, without looking at the past. And it dehumanizes and delegitimizes a really wide range of identities within our society and our cultures which deserve an equal place. But, okay, to conclude then, right, I've also been asked to talk a little bit about the future. And uh, I really don't like to do that because I'm a historian. I talk about the past, I interpret the past, right? You can the people um, But I think a major problem of now, right, is that the People's Action Party has become trapped in its own myth-making. I can recall you and this generation, Raman especially, were wise enough to know that these myths that we are creating about our identity, right, are for political expedience. And they were engaged in the act of myth-making to build a nation. And they had to know that because they did a, you know, a 180 between we are Malayan to we are nothing, you know, to we are Singaporean, forget about Malayan, what Malayan? You know? So they went through these three distinct phases of myth-making. But our politicians today, unfortunately, I think, don't know this. They've grown up only with these myths, and they genuinely do believe it, and we don't have the opportunity in Singapore to query a lot of these myths and really think about them. Right? And this is very dangerous because you become trapped in a very specific way of looking at the world with its attendant values and assumptions. And, you know, I can't speak for what they believe, of course. It could be that they are actually very enlightened. I don't know. But they do seem to believe and they behave and the policies they put out and the rhetoric they put out Right, reinforces this very narrow view of Singapore's past. Right? Which I must emphasize, right? when I talk about a narrow view, I'm not saying it's fake, I'm saying it's a narrow view, it's just one perspective on a past which has so many different participates, participants. Right? They believe that Singapore is very fragile right? and very vulnerable in terms of our society. So they pass laws that emphasize that fear and are designed to address that fear. But also reinforce and create more fear. See, when you see everything as a threat, you respond as in a very paranoid way, right? And the PAP's legitimacy has become tied up very much in this myth. We saw this in 2015, right, with their election, the manifesto. Because the manifesto was nothing about the future. The manifesto was all about the past. Equal new 15 they realise what a manifesto is supposed to be it's supposed to be a plan for the future and voters vote on the plan for the future they want, but instead of the manifesto, nothing about the future, right, I think the MP Zainal said uh, you know, this manifesto has no promises because it's very easy to make empty promises <laughs> like,
1: yeah.
0: this, is, this is the state of politics in Singapore unfortunately, right, and now Lee Hsien Loong and other ministers can't give a speech without talking about Lee Kuan Yew You know, they constantly mention the myth of Lee Kuan Yew, the Singapore story, as his first book was called, right? And this is constantly repeated out of political necessity because that's the fundamental justification for continued PAP rule. But Lee Kuan Yew left power in 1990 and he died in 2015. And he's been gone a long time. And he was from a different era. He was a master at navigating us through the Cold War. The Cold War is long gone. We have different challenges today. We need leadership who can articulate a vision for where we're going. But the problem with that is, to do that, you have to let go of the past, right? Or you have to honestly re-examine the past in the light of the challenges you face today. And the people cannot do that without delegitimizing itself, without letting go of Lee Kuan Yew, without letting uh, go of the things that it needs to stay in power and keep winning elections. And this is the fundamental contradiction, the fundamental problem they face. So, in a nutshell, right? history is, a nar- is not a narrative. History is an argument. There's no one version, no one objective version of history. It's, we can only learn from the past by arguing over it and constantly reinterpreting it for a new generation to meet new challenges and to face new problems. By restricting ourselves to one narrow view of history, valid but very narrow, right, we privilege this certain perspective And we thus absorb all the pitfalls and all the positives and also all the pitfalls of their perspectives, all the values, the assumptions of that perspective. But this monopoly on history also allows the people who control that history to then monopolize who we are, our national identity, right? And then to use it, to weaponize it in pursuit of their own aims. And we end up with groupthink, with conformity, right? With appeals to a misguided sense of unity. Right? The question is always unity on whose terms? And it's usually unity on someone else's terms, right? And you know, what they really mean is obedience to authority rather than <coughs> unity. And then we end up with justification for exclusion, for discrimination, for xenophobia, and even for genocide. So despite a reading of history that argues for Singaporean exceptionalism, we actually find that the PP is and Singapore is no different from this long, broad arc of the 20th century. And unfortunately, today, you know, it's become trapped in its own narrative of history. Okay, thank you very much.
2: You. I, I think how we should proceed with questions uh, is when you ask a question, can you please stand up, uh, introduce yourself and then ask it. Uh, could they please be questions and not expositions? Uh, okay, that's it. Uh, do we have questions from the audience?
3: Um, hi, so I'm John. I'm a third-year economist. And so my my question to with one of your Facebook posts
1: last year. Can I just quote it up briefly? Right. And just uh, Facebook post. It says, um, Happy 50th, first national day
3: to all Singaporeans. On this day in 1965, we separated from is my fervent wish that we will overcome narrow politics and one day find um, our rightful place alongside our brothers and sisters uh, in Malaysia. So yes. in Malaysia, yeah. So uh, my my question is, uh, first, did you write this Facebook post? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> What's <laughs> <laughs> going on right now? So <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah. And, yeah. I told you. Yeah. Is whether you still hold on to that belief <clears throat> that yes. Singapore should re uh, remerge with Malaysia and, and what do you think um, could
3: like facilitate that or whether it will be desirable at all.
0: Yes, okay thanks for the question. Interesting question. Um, yeah. So as a historian right, I look at Singapore in this long arc of history and I I think about how Singapore we could be so much more, right? We are The we were the intellectual cultural capital of Southeast Asia and with just a few tweaks we could be that again and like uh, our leaders of the 60s I believe that we could be so much more as part of a bigger entity you know if you think of New York separated from the USA or London separated from the United Kingdom they wouldn't be quite the same right? they wouldn't have that hinterland and so I really passionately do believe that if we can overcome narrow politics and become part of a a larger entity, we could all be so much more. Singaporeans could be so much more. Malayans, Malaysians could all be so much more working together. Now, your question about what could facilitate that, and I think the main thing is that both countries need to be democracies with governments accountable to the people, and the people of both countries need to want that, Right, it has to be something that everyone desires. Right, no imposition. That's just colonialism again. Right, but uh, I think that's a necessary precondition—a desire among the people. So I think if uh, you know, in this indefinite future, you know, 20, 30, 40 years from now, right, if Singapore is a democracy and we realize that. Well, what's everyone laughing um, and, and, you know, borders change all the time, right? We, there's a human failing where we think the present is how it was, is, and always. You know, we interpret things through the present. But if you look at the borders around us, they have changed so many times throughout history. If you look at the borders around the world, they're still changing. Right. And there have been examples of countries successfully merging, becoming something more. You know, if you look at the US, of course, it started in thirteen colonies and it has expanded to fifty states and so on and so forth, there is no reason why a democratic Singapore could not choose to become the intellectual, cultural, economic capital of a bigger state. And whether that's solely just Malaysia or more, you know, I don't know, we'll leave that to our descendants. But um, the important thing is I think this scenario would enhance uh, the lives of Singaporeans and Malaysians so much more because of you know, these historical, cultural links between the two um, countries. Yeah. Does that answer your question? Did I answer every part of your question? There were several parts. Yes, yeah.
3: but I have a follow
2: up question. A short yes. one. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned
3: uh, illegal independence, very referring to Singapore's uh, independence on August 9, yeah. uh, 1965 and I just want to understand what you mean by illegal independence.
0: Yeah, this was very controversial at the time, you see, because Lee Kuan Yew wanted Malaysia to be created and this was uh, to take place on, uh, you know, the same independence day as the rest of Malaysia, right? Medeca, day 31st August. Uh, the problem is, of course, this was very controversial at the time for Sabah and Sarawak, and the Tunku hesitated and said, you know, okay, we'll let a UN survey of Sabah and Sarawak, or North Borneo, as it's called, North Borneo and Sarawak, go ahead. And this survey then later, you know, found that one-third of the people of the two states wanted merger, one-third didn't care, and one-third were against, right? And this, it was all very sketchy. But the Tunku did not want to be seen as a coloniser. So he wanted UN legitimacy to go into these territories and give him a result that said, yes, they will join Malaysia. Lee Kuan Yew was too impatient, though. And the problem was his domestic politics, right, was so much predicated on delivering merger in a timely fashion. And he was terrified that the Tunku would back out of merger because Lee Kuan Yew had... Uh, it was this a game of brinkmanship, right? The Tunku said no merger till you conduct Operation Cold Saw and arrest the Malay left and arrest all the people uh, you know, who might organise the opposition against me in Singapore, right? The people that, you know, Tunku was terrified of, of Lim Xinxiong and his ability to organise the Chinese and the Malay left together in a multi-lingual multinational coalition, right? Whereas Lee Kuan Yew knew that the moment he arrested them, The Tunku would have no more reason to uh, conduct merger because Lee Kuan Yew sold merger to the Tunku as you've got to have merger, otherwise these people will take over Singapore and you'll have a cuba on your doorstep. So there was this brinkmanship, and so Lee Kuan Yew, you know, they actually were going to do coal store in December '62, and then called it off because they couldn't agree, right? And then they finally did in February. And once they did in February, Lee Kuan Yew said, "I must have merger now, 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 because I've I've done this, and I'm going to face consequences electorally if we don't have merger." And the Tunku said, "No, no, wait, we need to sort out of issues. You know, I'm in no hurry." And so that's why, right? They agreed thirty-first. Uh, sorry, uh, yeah, thirty-first August, and then the Tunku delayed it, and Lee Kuan Yew said, "Screw this! I'm declaring independence." So whether this is legal or illegal, legitimate or illegitimate, what it was was just ignored by everyone, right? Everyone just rolled their eyes, ignored Lee Kuan Yu, And he said, we are independent of the British Empire, and I hold my powers in trust for the federal government. So if you ask a constitutional expert, like uh, Kevin Tan, for example, uh, you know, in the US, right, he'll tell you this was totally illegitimate and illegal. Whereas, you know, morally, right, Singapore should have been independent a long time ago, right? We, the richest country in Asia, the most highly educated, right, the best infrastructure, all of that, we should have been independent a long time ago, purely on the basis of capability and merit. And yet we weren't. So why can't the elected leader of Singapore just declare independence from uh, the British Empire? Why not, right? So that's why I call it our illegal declaration of independence, Because, you know, most declarations of independence are illegal, right? Sukarno's words, George Washington's words, but we recognise them because ultimately this is our country and we can, you know, we should govern it ourselves. So the thing is, of course, as a historian, people always forget these dates, right? They forget the date of self-government in June 59. They forget about the fact that we became independent as part of Malaysia, right? And that this happened 31st August and then 16th September. And then there was a separation in 65, and that somehow is treated as a day of independence, even though we were part of a already independent and sovereign nation, right? Unless you see us as a colony of Malaysia, which you know you could kind of make that case given the, the very strange setup and our underrepresentation of do Right yet. But my goal is to really get people to think and talk about Singapore history and to think about different <coughs> ways and different interpretations and what ifs and you know and understand. Um, history back then and so I'm actually you know, really glad that people are digging through these old posts in that way but of course a lot of people seem the, I mean not a lot of you, but there's a specific group of people who are using that to attack me you know, whatever <laughs> yeah. so, uh, Could we get the young lady in, in black? No, that's
2: you, oh, yes that's- <laughs> Hi, I'm Rutherford, government student studies here um, So when you were speaking about the lecture
3: in I'm wondering whether it was a flux in identity politics which led Singaporeans to adopt British attitudes towards Malay um, Mm people in the sort of vein of Orientalism in the 19th and 20th centuries that led to contemporary racism within Singaporean society.
0: Mm, Interesting question. No, I think um, 63 and 65, right, was um, very much driven by high-level politics at the time. Most Singaporeans, I think, the complexities of the form of merger were very hard to communicate. And, you know, Barisan kept campaigning on the fact that this form wouldn't work, and yet they lost the referendum. They advocated blank votes. Only 25% of people voted blank votes. So I think most Singaporeans didn't really think about the complexities of merger that way. And this um, was not really the big issue that drove uh, all the problems that we had in 63 and 65, but rather when you look at what happened and how um, you know, events evolved, right? It's overwhelmingly because of the choices of the PAP leadership at the time to pursue um, a Malaysia-wide strategy for the PAP. And in order to do that, they played the race card very heavily, and that is what led to the kind of racial issues that we had. Now, this is not to say, uh, you know, that they are fully to blame, right? Um, the, uh, you know, Lee Kuan Yew's aggressive use of the the race card and his breaking of his promise to the Tunku not to contest the sixty-four federal elections, right? Empowered and legitimized the hard right wing of AMNO, right? The people that, you know, Li Kuan Yew then referred to as the Malay Ultras. And rose, you know, uh, gave them greater legitimacy and prominence politically within the party at the expense of the moderate center led by Tungu Abdurrahman. Um, and so you end up with a campaign of escalation on both sides, right? that... Um, you know, uh, ends up with uh, this consequence of riots and separation, um, and and that is is you know, I think that's a better explanation for what happened in sixty three to sixty five, based on the sources that we have of what happened at the time and what we can tell. Uh, the problem, of course, is a lot of the sources we have are, are still classified, right? Everything after. 16 September 63 is locked up tight in Singapore and everything after, you know, 31 August 57 is locked up tight in Malaysia. So there's a lot we don't know about the high-level communications. Uh, but what we, we can tell based on public speeches is that politicians and leaders of the time used extremely inflammatory rhetoric to try and promote, again, a game of brinkmanship, you know. And Lee Kuan Yew was trying to force the Tunku to choose between his hard right and... Uh, the PAP, right, and and Tunku uh, Saint Thaddeus Cambridge was, of course, very much um, a moderate and and agreed with the PAP in terms of his uh, their beliefs, uh, their general position. But he was not going to abandon his you know Malay brethren for this Chinese upstart, right? So it's a lot of high level politics <coughs> that drove it, I think, and. Um, you know uh, i mean if oh, the the other thing is you know that there, there can be no doubt that lee kuan yew was openly racist throughout the 19 1965 right if you read the lim kim san interview for example in leaders of singapore or you read Lin chin's no man's is An island the problem was that lee kuan yew was heavily dependent on drugs at the time right he couldn't sleep so they gave him sedatives right this is 60s medicine was very different than and then he couldn't wake up because of the, the sedatives, so they gave him uppers. And so his temperament was all over the place. He was, you know, not really in sound mind at the time. And so Lin Kim-san says, you know, we tell Lee Kuan Yu, right, we tell Kuan Yu, don't say this, don't say this, and don't say this. He'd get up on stage, open his mouth, and say everything we told him not to say And this is the problem, right? He, he was the, the sole authority in Singapore, and was extremely unstable. And if you read what he said at times, it's clearly, you know, he goes between his, you know, extremely calm, competent, you know, classic Lee Kuan Yew, very steady, to this crazy, you know, uh, racist, xenophobic madman who's saying all sorts of really horrific things on the stage. So I think, you know, that in itself is is, uh, really important to remember. But of course, all of that is expunged from our textbooks. Yeah. Uh, the man is
2: oh. no you yes, uh, yes.
4: so actually i just like to follow up on the earlier guy's question so yeah. sorry I, I'm wanting I'm studying natural sciences I'm in my first year uh, sorry for any Malaysians here but uh, what would you say Singapore would stand to gain necessarily from a merger or, or reunification with Malaysia mm-hmm. given that um currently the country is still undergoing sort of a recovery from you know, the past nine years under a certain Prime Minister and uh, given also that the population itself can be said to not be ready to accept what is mostly a Chinese-majority society. Right. You know, recently with January twelve, you see 55,000 protesters coming out because the fear of, of, you know, the foreign, of the Chinese, if you will, is very real. Yeah. So that being said, if we go and join Malaysia, would you say it's like taking a step back?
0: when you say it's like a right. you know I don't know I, I don't see why we would give ourselves. Okay, I I think it's it's a bit unfair to say
1: Malaysia is in a bad state. Every country has it's good and it's bad. Every country is different,
0: right? And I I'd rather I I don't think I want to address the question of whether Malaysia is better or worse off than Singapore. I, I, you know, I think we all have our problems and we all have our strong points. Uh, But the point I made earlier is that both countries have to democratically accept this. And I think that in the long run we recognise that the two countries are joined at the hip and heavily reliant on each other, we share you know, as we've seen recently, we share water, we we share (laughs) uh, boundaries, borders, airspace and if you know, if Singapore was part of a bigger entity with a hinterland, you know, and the ability to tap into those resources and to draw upon um, all the talent that is out there in Malaysia, that I think, I think, uh, you know, we we can agree that there is a lot of talent in Malaysia that is underutilized, and there's a big brain drain, you know, and in Malaysia can draw upon our. Uh, Uh, infrastructure and our expertise and our links, right, there is a lot there to mutual benefit, right, so I'm not saying we should merge reunify tomorrow, right, the first precondition is that both sides have to want this and recognise there is a common good in getting back together, right, and that there are a lot of links and shared interests that we could then pursue together and, you know, if you look at Indonesia with its great diversity, you know, 280 million people speaking very, very different languages across uh, the entire archipelago. If they can find unity in that diversity and create such a big, strong country, why can't we? right? So I'm not saying this is going to happen tomorrow and I'm not saying the situation is ideal today. I just believe we'd be better off as part of this bigger community and... Um, that you know there is, there is a, a, a potential future there which I would like to explore, and I encourage you know, us to explore commonalities instead of focusing on things which divide us and you know, otherizing each other and, and, and focusing on a, a frankly ridiculous rivalry when there are much bigger problems. Yeah. Actually, I kind of have a follow up question. A short, a short sorry. one.
4: Oh, sorry? A short one. Yeah, a short one. Uh, okay. So, uh, given that the current prime minister, of, uh, given that the current prime minister of Singapore has been, well, he's been head of government for like 15 years. Mm-hmm. As an historian, what would you say is his legacy? <laughs> <laughs> legacy. <laughs>
0: See, part of the thing about talking about legacies is you need time to process, right? Um, I don't, you know, I, I I don't know if we can even talk about Nipal Liu's legacy with great accuracy because he's only been dead three years, you know. And uh, I mean, as we've seen with Mahathir, right? People can change their legacy quite drastically. <laughs> so, honestly, what I'm gonna, what I'll say is. His time, Lee Hsien Loong's time in office, I don't think has been you know he's kept the ship going in the same direction. He's kept things looking over, but I don't think he's drastically changed Singapore from the direction it was in before it was you know. So I I think that's the that's the most I can comment right now. It's it's just too early to tell tell quite on. Uh, the young
2: lady in the corner over there, no view.
1: Yes.
0: no water of uh,
1: both the drinking
0: Even people are bringing up old Facebook posts, someone's going to ask me about my visit to Mahathir. So I suppose I might as well bring it
1: up at this
0: point. And, you know, I, when I met Mahathir, we only talked about Malaysia, right? Contrary to what some people have accused me of, right? My fear was that he would become like an Aung San Suu Kyi, elected in lots of hope and turn, turn out to be a tyrant. So I talked to him about legacy and the importance of democracy and how he could be seen as a great Southeast Asia statesman, right? And in that sense, when I posted on Facebook, right, and I said, you know, take leadership for democracy, that's what I meant, right? I wanted to be a Democrat and to listen to his people. And unfortunately, he rejected that. He profoundly rejected that because he, you know, fundamentally, he has not changed from the 80s and 90s. He's the same old Mahathir. And he made the same old tired arguments, you know, with new spins to to recognize the change in the situation, right? He's still sharp, he's still there, but his values, his beliefs haven't changed. And I think that, you know, so one one theory to answer your question to look at Singapore and Malaysia today is it's kind of maybe to return to his more confrontational, more confrontational stance towards Singapore and in particular as a way of distracting from domestic issues. Now, I mean, if you ask me, I think the sooner that Dr. Mahathir goes, the better. He's done, you know, he's changed his legacy, right? He's done uh, what he set out to do. We need to move on to a new leadership. I honestly, I, I, I don't even know if Anwar is the right person to take over. I think a new generation should take over. You know, we need new ideas. And this leads me to my broader point, which is, I think both countries don't have a clear idea of, or don't have leaders who can articulate a clear idea of where we, they want to go, right? National identity, what kind of country do we want, what kind of people, what kind of society. I think Malaysia is in some ways way, way actually way ahead of Singapore in, in, in arguing this, right? Um, in talking about this, but there isn't a clear idea, a clear vision, Um that has emerged from the the sort of uh, centre and centre left, you know, or different ideas, especially in contestation with a very hard conservative view um, of uh, of Malaysia that is, you know, currently espoused by Malaysia's opposition. But Singapore, we've got nothing at all. And the reason why I mention this is because I think until you decide your vision, right? Until you decide where you want to go, you can't set policy. And what we have right now is in Singapore, we are squabbling a lot over policy, but if you don't know where you want to go, any road will take you there. And we don't know where Singapore is going. There's no great leadership in Singapore. And that then affects everything else, right? What is our relationship to Malaysia, to Indonesia, to China? Right? What is our place in the world? These are all really important questions for our leaders to ask and for us to debate right? and to come up with answers to collectively and we don't have that debate in Singapore. And you know, until we get that, everything is going to be very reactive and ad hoc and you know, as the government loves to say, pragmatic, which just means just doing whatever is the easiest, which is the status quo, Stick is the status quo. And in, in a world which is totally changing, Right where, you know, all these the neoliberal consensus nationalism, all these forces. We've got economic recessions, right? All these difficulties are coming our way. We need a clear idea of where we're going. You know, I think, I mean, uh, if I can, you know, Brexit is the same problem, right? This squabbling over the form of Brexit, right? But no one can articulate what happens after Brexit, and that's the problem. You can't have you can't just have a policy of Brexit without knowing where you're going to go afterwards. Because if it turns out, if you articulate this vision of Britain that requires you to leave the European Union, then sure, Brexit is fine, right? It's, the Brexit is not the, uh, a cause, it's a symptom of a broader failure of political leadership to come up with a coherent vision of where the country is going to go. And that's the same problem we have in Singapore... And to a lesser extent, I think because of the, the cut and thrust of debate and elections, Malaysia has a better sense of where at least its government and its opposition both have better sense of where they want to go. But you know that's that's what is is uh, you know the, the biggest failure that we have right now in Singapore. Um, yep. Hi, hi, hello. Um, thank you for your talk. I'm Lea, I'm a music student
1: here
3: in my first year, right. and. I was very interested in what you said about people not being able to create a vision of the future for themselves without inherently contradicting themselves due to uh, the, the, the way that they use the colonial, the colonial history as a form of lineage. And I'm wondering what you interpret of the addition of the four new statues for Singapore's bicentennial. Um, and most, most crucially and radically, I think, the making transparent of the Stanford Raffles statue And whether this potentially signals a a new strategy in the way that the colonial history will
0: be used. Right, thanks. Um, So, the thing about policy making by the government, actually by the government, right, it's not a a monolith. And there are plenty of very intelligent people trying to do very interesting things within the strictures of the system. And I find that what they're trying to achieve, right, making raffles kind of invisible, bringing uh, these new statues in, you know, it, it, it points towards something admirable in that there is a, an attempt at inclusion, there is a recognition of certain limitations of our history, of the periodization, and that's great. Um, the problem, as always, is there is a lot of tokenism and gesturing in our system without discussions or debates over the fundamental issues. Right and um, in in a you know in a bureaucracy in a civil service um, and especially in Singapore, the incentives are very much towards conservatism. You know, for those of you who've uh, you know um, been a part of the system, you know, you you, you you tweak at the margins, right? You talk about how things are generally correct, but you want to tweak at the margins and there's no challenging of the status quo in a fundamental way. So that's kind of how I see um, the bicentennial. It's kind of schizophrenic, you know, like, is it 700 years? Why do we have some, you know, there? Or is it 200 years? Are we actually going to then foster and have these very, you know, uh, challenging and disruptive debates about our past, reinterpreting our past? Are we actually going to then bring in a lot of perspectives which have hitherto been deliberately excluded or inadvertently excluded? Are we actually going to, you know, enable these discussions? I, I don't think so. I, I, I live in hope, you know, but... I mean, the sad fact is there just aren't many Singaporean historians because it's career suicide. <laughs> yeah. How do we have these debates when there are people who aren't doing this research, right? And um, you know, how do we foster this sort of debate in a climate of fear and censorship? So yeah, that's kind of the frame I see those, those things. But I really hope, I, I live in hope to be proven wrong in a lot of these things.
1: Yeah.
2: Uh, maybe I'll ask you a question. Uh, sure. Use <laughs> <your> <laughs> <job of laughs> Yeah, so um, you spoke about uh, you know, gave us a source of history about narratives that, that's been constructed in Singapore and how it's changed over time. Yeah. Uh, and even so, it's quite difficult to deny that you know, the whole existential narrative, or the existential threat narrative, as well as the multiracial narrative has been you know, exceedingly helpful in Singapore in mm. keeping Singaporeans on their toes, getting them to work harder, getting them to get along with each other. and so. Wouldn't you say that, you know, such myths even if they're not, you know, true might be helpful even in, you know, the
0: right the present. You you're asking me a kind of counterfactual, right? Because it's impossible to say what if these myths hadn't existed, would Singapore be different? You know, and, and I, I get various forms of these questions. Counterfactuals are by definition impossible to answer because, you know, what if, what if, what if? I mean, how do you answer that? But
2: that's why it's more fun. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: what, what I can say is, you know, if you look at Singapore history, um, we have never lacked for hard work, right? I mean, we're a nation of immigrants. And Singapore is an economic success because of the hard work of its population, right? You you could have a leaders, but if the people don't want to work hard or follow you, you're not going to get anywhere. Um, and Singapore has also had, you know, centuries of good relations in our society. Um, you know, as I mentioned, we've never had a race riot. Uh, we've had economic riots. We've had anti-colonial riots. We've had political riots, right? You know. Um, but we've never had a race riot, and I think that also says something about our society and uh, you know the robustness of of, of our society. Um, in fact, I think it's you know if you ask me, it's the opposite because this paternalism creates a fragility, right? If we're always running to mommy and daddy to solve our problems for us, we lose the capacity for us to solve our problems ourselves. And I think this reliance on the government for so many things breeds a certain, um, you know, creates a a fragile society and a a very brittle one. Um, Especially if then the institutions that we are so reliant on break down themselves. So all I can say, you know, is that historically you don't see these kind of problems in Singapore, right? Singapore has problems but we don't tend to have that set of problems before the PAP came along and we didn't have them during, you know, even before the, um, even, you know, during the, the whole PAP period. So it's impossible to say anything more beyond that. Yeah. Yep,
2: Ah, uh, uh, The young lady in black, uh, no, that's you turning around, yes, you. <laughs> one uh, the one on my right to so your left okay. uh, this my name so is graduate student um, and my question I to do with your
3: closing remarks about historical narratives mm-hmm. um, so you mentioned uh, that you would like a, a sort of a, a plurality of, of historical narratives rather than a, a narrow even though um, a, a narrow if um, valid And I think while I agree uh, that the plurality of historical narratives being available is a good thing,
1: um,
3: I wonder what you would say to um, preventing that sort of plurality from possibly descending into a kind of relativism, uh, either moral or factual, um, and how you envision that sort of adjudication of uh, of value of, uh, yeah, whether it happens in public opinion, or how you see that happening. Yeah, I think, yeah, um,
0: <clears throat> thanks for the question. It is, um, it's, it's always a challenge, right, to have a uh, healthy, robust debate, right? And it's, uh, but it's a necessary challenge that all societies like, need to face if they don't want to wither and die. Um, for, you know, for Singapore's case, I think that we have had a lot of, how do I put this in my experience in Singapore right if you don't go on Facebook Singaporeans are actually really good at having very interesting and respectful dates <laughs> <laughs> and um, I you know so that suggests to me there is something about how you conduct the dates the forum the format you know and um and I know I'm not, not asking all of questions, but I'm just thinking this too, right? Um, you know, people have asked me like, uh, how I feel about all these, these attacks online, and they're very strange, right? For one thing, they, they always take place over like a very limited period, three days or one week, and then they all disappear. Uh, but for another thing, they only take place online. And in the real world, every time I go out, you know, there are people who come up to me and thank me for the work I'm doing and engage me in... Issues of interest, and so my experience in Singapore is actually uh, it gives me a lot of hope, right? A lot of positivity because people may disagree with me, but they are you know they 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 show the capacity to have respectful debate. Now, uh, to, to to speak to your point on you know degenerating into relativism, I think um, we. Well, evidence is one really important, you know, and you know, respect for for evidence, and um, I think you know hmm. this is it's it's a big challenge that um, all societies face. Um, but I just I okay, I think how we structure these debates and how we you know shape these debates, how we moderate these debates are really important the kind of values that we have as a society will help shape them, the rules that we put in place, right, to foster them are important. Um, And um, I fundamentally, I have faith in Singaporeans that we have the capacity to pull this off. Um, To speak to a broader point, right, I get a lot of questions about, you know, you want us to move in a certain direction, say more democracy, more debate, right, more dissent, what's to stop us then becoming like and then insert disaster example here and um, the the problem is we are so far all the way here right and the disaster scenario is all the way over here and there's no reason why we can't slowly make progress in this direction and, and try and stop here without going all the way there you know so people say you want more democracy, but democracy doesn't solve anything. Look at the riots in France. I'm not advocating for riots.
1: I'm advocating
0: for more accountability and transparency in our system, and some free and fair elections for a change. Right? That's all. <laughs> I'm not saying people should take to the streets and riot over every single issue or that you know tiny small. Lobbying groups should take over the agenda, you know, and and and, uh, and and force, you know, politicians to take extreme positions or anything like the American system or the paralysis that you see in other systems. No, you know, there is so much scope between where we are today and those disaster scenarios. So, you know, I think we can progress halfway, but knowing that those disaster scenarios are out there helps us know that okay, let's let's stop here. Right? There's no reason why we have to run headlong that way. We can slowly inch this way. And you know, when I talk about change in Singapore, I, I generally talk about just, let's have transparency, let's have accountability, and let's have free and fair elections. And if Singaporeans then, you know, the PAP then comes out and says, OK, I have this vision, but it's going to require authoritarianism, you're going to surrender your rights, but look at this vision, and in five, ten years, we're going to be fantastic. And people vote for that, right? I would be okay with that, right? I accept that, that you know, that outcome is fair, you know? So it's not like I'm, I'm advocating for some sort of anarchy or, you know, I would still fight for democratic rights, but it's not, you know, as long as the system's fair to everyone, right? Um, you know, that is fine, and I think we can get that by something here without going the way there. Yeah. Uh,
2: at the back? So, I'm um, saying I a second year used law student. So, yep. since we we're just on the topic of the future of Singapore, I have two questions on that. So, the first one um, is regarding
3: what you mentioned earlier about um, nation states. And uh, I was just curious that how the part of the 20th century has been a general tendency for there to be kind of like a uh, harmonization of like nationhood and nationalism. So, I was wondering if. Um, what are your thoughts about building a multicultural nation state? Um, and if that's the case, is there any way for Singapore and Malaysia to kind of move out of this unfortunate arc of the 20th century that we see? Um, the second question is also about the future of Singapore. Um, and the thing is, okay, I agree you with. Know, answer the first question. first. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, <yeah. laughs> okay. I mean, that's a million-dollar
0: question, right? How do we create stable, multi-ethnic, multinational, you know, states uh, without it then degenerating into? Um, you know this, this, this uh, weaponization nationalism, right? And I think if if someone can answer that, we solve a lot of problems in the twentieth century. And I, 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 I mean, I don't have the solution, but what I advocate for is, you know, more constructive debate. Someone out there has to have this great idea, right? And. Oh, you know, these great ideas only come out of constructive debate. So my solution that I, you know, and more broadly, when people ask me, what is the solution? What is the answer? The solution really, I feel, is more debate, more more, more dissent, right? Um, more discussion. And if you look at Singapore in the 50s, you know, that's what we had. We had um, limited democracy, but a kind of freedom where people were able to argue over many different visions of Malayan identity in a very respectful way right and articulate very interesting and intelligent and you know challenging ideas and so the capacity is there we had it in the past, and I think we can achieve that again uh, you know there 's no reason why we couldn 't do that again, so I I, I don't think I can answer the question of how we achieve this utopia, but I think the process, right, democracy is a process, improvement is a process, and how we set the contours of this discussion and how we encourage it, right, will go a long way to helping us get the answer. Yeah. So, sorry, I can't answer your question fully, but I think yeah, the process is more important than the, than the end result in many ways when it comes to governance and democracy, right? Because people need to have, uh, they need that faith and trust in the system. Um, and if you're obsessed about outcomes, right, it undermines the trust and faith in the system because then, um, you know, you, uh, people then feel like their, their views aren't being taken uh, into account that the system isn't fair, isn't rigged uh, against the people. Yeah. Right. What was your
1: second question? Yeah, um, so, my second question is sorry to go back to this, but it's about the issue
3: of re merging with Malaysia. Uh, because the thing is, I feel like I agree with most of your analysis, but um, after looking at the analysis, it just convinces me further that merger with Malaysia is probably a good idea. Uh, so, I feel like Given that, um, yeah, so I feel like given that global circumstances now are completely different, right, and we live in a completely different era, isn't looking back to the era where Singapore was the capital of Malaya a kind of historical romanticism? I just don't see how that would work in today's world or in any conceivable world in the future. Yeah, that's fair enough. You know,
0: I'm, I'm not going to impose my view on, on, uh, on you about that, and I accept, yeah, I think there's a certain, there might be a certain romanticism about it. Um, I think it would be a heck of a lot of hard work to achieve this. Um, you know, and maybe it can't be done. You know, maybe I'm, I'm too much of an idealist. Uh, but that's me. And I think as long as we have the space to peacefully express our views and disagree, that's, that's all I need. Hi, uh, I'm Arjun. I'm a law student. Uh, so just on similar theme, uh, and just practicing my question by saying that I don't you know a lot about Southeast Asian history, um, you make reference to Singapore being part of Malaya and talk about a Malayan identity. But given that we separated fifty years ago,
1: you know, and I don't even know what the geographical limit of this Malayan identity is. You know,
0: what what, if, what is Malayan identity? How do you see Malayan identity today? This is what i kind of struggling with, mm-hmm. I don't really understand what you mean. Oh, thanks. That's a really good question. Um, you know, nobody's ever asked me to articulate Malayan identity before. Um, and I think my, the important principle that I want to you know, re-emphasize is that identity needs to be collectively formed from a process of discussion and debate between the constituent peoples of any um, you know, group, but also that identity needs to be constructive because the moment you start excluding people from that identity, right, you, you walk down that road that I talked about, right, the weaponization of nationalism. So for me, really in the land identity, uh, the fundamental principles would be inclusiveness, uh, a, a constructiveness, um, acceptance of uh, diversity and differences, right, and I think those are the important principles that we need to start with. Um, and then on that, right, you kind of start thinking about um, you know the specific geographical circumstances in which we exist. So I, I know I'm not giving you a like a solid description of our identity. But you see I, I you know I as I emphasize again and again, right, it's it's the process which is more important than the outcome. You know, and how we arrive at this identity, in many ways, is the important component of the identity that I'd like to see, right? And a, a, a process which is fair, which encompasses a lot of views, which is tolerant, which is inclusive, right? That's the basis for me for something that is, has, you know, gains uh, widespread acceptance, common currency that then forms a lasting collective polity. Right, rather than you define it, which means that you exclude certain people, you know, um, which tends to be how we start defining identity today. So, and what are your yeah. geographical limits? What's the geographical boundary of this identity? Yeah, um, I think you'd start with, well, I, uh, so because you know, Peninsula Malaysia, right, and Bornean Malaysia, you've already got. A a unification there, Singapore wouldn't be joining uh, a purely Malayan situation as we envisioned fifty years ago, but rather a Malaysian situation. Um, So, it it would already be very different in that sense. Um, We'd have to start thinking about articulating a Malaysian identity rather than a Malayan identity. Uh, But in that context again, it's really really important that the people of Sarawak and Sabah are treated fairly because right now they're quasi-colonies of Kuala Lumpur and we need to build a process where those states are treated fairly within the system as well. Um, So, you know, honestly, I think Malayan identity, it it doesn't have to be Malayan, uh, but it could be some new Conception of identity that people collectively agree and come up with in the future, um, and you know these borders are fluid. We really don't know what the world is going to evolve into in 50, 100 years. Uh, so the important thing again, you know, come back. The principles are the important thing, right? Not the specific identity, not the specific geographical boundaries, but that we collectively work together for the the common good in a process which respects all people and human rights.
2: Just a quick follow up to that. I mean sorry. Uh, Process is well and good, but doesn't that presuppose that we arrive at some outcome? Because Mm -hmm. we we might merge and have a sort of consultative democracy and end up, you know, we don't get along. So what makes you so sure that, you know, from some democratic process there emerge an outcome?
0: What makes me so sure that from... You mean uh, a permanent outcome? Yes, um, yeah. But yeah, million no, million it's, it's, you know, the outcomes can change, right? Again, it's... Um, I think that if a process, or rather, well, here know. Okay. I don't, I'm going to be accused of being an idealist again, but, you know, a process that is, is um, inclusive and fair to, to the people who take part in it, I think, there are going to be, in any process, there's going to be people who disagree with the outcome, but I think they will respect the outcome if people feel that it is a generally fair process, and then you, you know, you move on and deal with the next problem. So. The challenge is to build a robust process that allows you to have these debates and sort out these outcomes, right? Which is the the hard part, and I think which, um, you know, is is the is the bigger challenge, right? And I and I think this process itself will have to evolve, but you know, this is um, this is a challenge that all countries, all democracies face, and I don't think it'll be perfect, but you know. I, I don't think it's sustainable to build a process in which minorities are excluded or oppressed, is, you know, is my point. That is not sustainable, and I think that leads down the road to disaster.
2: Yeah. Uh, okay. Right at the back. The last row. My name is
1: I'm
0: a history PhD here. Uh, no. So I apologize for bringing the discussion back to the past. No, no, uh, please. In your talk, you describe the <laughs> Future. Uh,
4: in your talk, you describe the evolution of the domestic narrative of uh, free education, the focus on Rappel in the 80s and then the support story
3: in the 90s. Yeah. Uh, but we also know that uh, Albert
0: Spinsamis advised the retention of the Rappel statue in the 60s. Yeah. And the government retained the use of colonial names like Kavanaugh, Kennedy, uh, yeah. and Fort Canning, for one. Uh, yeah. And so this is this merely signalling for an international uh, investor audience or is this
4: related to a domestic narrative they're trying to create or grapple with? Uh,
0: yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think uh, that's an interesting question. I mean, without, you know, going, mm-hmm. without having access to the internal debates about it, what we do know is that uh, the public, the domestic... Uh, historical narrative was the one Ratnam articulated, which was basically forget about the past, you know, but creating a new man, a new society. Uh, so I I would surmise from the what we know that it was uh, more to do with signalling for international capital, and Singapore's decision to embrace uh, you know international capital and continue in its role as a, a colonial client state. And you know, to show that it's open for business at a time when many former colonies were worried about neo-colonialism and the influence of uh, you know foreign investment on their domestic politics.
2: Yep, very enthusiastic in the middle. <laughs> 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 uh good
3: evening Dr. Thumb, thanks for the sharing. Sure. I'm Sean, I'm a second year history student. I have a question about privilege and questioning narratives. So I think a big theme of the talk today and the questions being asked and the whole discussion is going on is about being able to question the narratives that will be presented with every day in Singapore yep. for the past 50 years. Um, and I just want to, wanted to just put a question out there about what extent we feel that is a product of privilege. To what extent are we, I mean, being able to, to stand in, a, in, a like this, in an institution like this, an institution in a in university, that excludes quite a majority of Singaporeans to begin with. Being able to come to university, that is quite an opportunity. Cause I guess my the the crux of the matter that I'm trying to drive at is the opportunity cost of giving a shit in a way. <laughs> <laughs> in a sense, like. What's, what is, What's your question? Uh, my question is, what extent is questioning narratives born of uh, privileged status within the Singaporean system? Twice then, are we only able to question that right. once we've benefited from this system and grown uh, comfortable enough to not only be able to voice mm-hmm. out our skepticism of it, but also be able to move beyond it? Yeah. Right,
0: thanks. Okay, so um, I think my ability to have uh, such a loud and impactful voice comes from the fact that I have a huge amount of privilege, right? I have, you know. I, I tick off all the, the boxes of, the, you know, of, of privileged status in Singapore, and that gives me the ability to uh, project my voice far beyond uh, you know, a lot of other people. But questioning the narrative happens all the time, we just don't hear those voices, right? So it's, it's, um, you know, you, you're kind of in the right direction. It's not a question of the ability to question the narrative, because that happens all the time. Actually, our next Political Agenda podcast for New Narrative, we're planning to have uh, a range of Malay intellectuals and and artists who are very unhappy with how Bicentennial is celebrated. And so, you know, um, hopefully we'll be able to, to pull that up, but, you know, we're trying to find dates. But um, I think that's part of our uh, um, responsibility, is to try and empower other voices and give other voices uh, you know, space to speak, right? So the, the, they're definitely questioning, and there's very intelligent, interesting views out there, right, it's, so it's not a question of the, um, being able to, ch- uh, to question, it's a question of getting your voice heard, and I think that's, that's the difference that um, you know, privilege has
2: made.
0: Hi, my name is Jonathan, I'm a second year English student and I actually have two questions for you, I'll ask the first one first, kind of building off Arjun's question about Malayan identity. So does this conception of a Malayan identity stem from an understanding of what we may consider the Malay realm, or for a more neutral term. Maritime Southeast Asia, Nusantara, the Indonesian archipelago, right. incorporating Malaysia, Philippines, Indonesia, and if that's the case, mm-hmm. to what extent do you foresee Singapore, or can or should Singapore align itself within this larger region as a kind of political, cultural, linguistic entity, mm-hmm. rather than as a political entity, as has been suggested in terms of reunification, and the extent to which that should happen rather than what's happening now, which is you know all of us here aligning ourselves within the Anglo-sphere right. of the world. And that's my first question, the second okay. question I'll ask after Okay, that's a very interesting question. You know, I, I, okay, so I didn't expect this line of questioning about Malayan identity. Um, it's very interesting actually. Um, I, you know, I, I think that there are, Okay, you know, again, coming back to, to the important principles, right, uh, my view of Malayan identity is not necessarily what it should, should be, but just um, on my reflection of uh, what I've, you know, what I've thought about it so far, right, uh, you know, um, and ultimately it should reflect uh, broader, you know, consensus in a robust process. Um... I think that Singapore has a lot to gain from recognizing our location in the center of the Malay world, right? And it is um, a really, you know, um, I think I think this part of the world—it's—it's—it's it's, it's such a fascinating, interesting part of the world, but also it's, there's so much untapped potential in it. And I think that Singapore would do really well to um, you know, try and exercise leadership, collective leadership in this part of the, of the world. And I think um, that's part of how I envisioned new narrative when I started it, right? That I am um, in, as, in as much a sense as any identity is arbitrary and any borders are, you know, are arbitrary. Um, I articulated New Narratives' vision as a Southeast Asian one because I feel that this region has a lot to gain from working together, but also that understanding our problems within the region need to be understood looking at the region as a whole because the borders, you know, again, being very, not just arbitrary, but fluid and porous, um, they need to be transcended in how we understand um, these issues, right? So, um, you know, new narrative being a Southeast Asian platform reflects my own vision that I think, and my own belief that um, you know the region as a whole has a lot of commonalities and would benefit from working very much together, right? So. I'm just wondering if this line of questioning, like, do people feel that I am arguing for a specific vision of Malayan identity based on my comments? Uh, Because I don't think I'm, I hope I haven't given that impression. Um, Instead, right, when I talked about Malayan identity, it was very much in the context of the past and how it was viewed as. The, the states of British Malaya which shared a common um, historical heritage, administrative structure coming together to form a post-colonial independent entity. Uh, and then to go back to the gentleman with the question about the tweet, right? I think that the, Singapore has a future within a bigger entity and could offer so much more. But I'm not saying that we go back specifically to that Malayan identity. Right, we move forward towards something new uh, and something that is built that could be envisioned very differently. But I think Singapore would be better off being part of a larger entity than it is right now as just one island. I think that's the fundamental point I'm going to make. So now I'm thinking about your questions. I wonder if uh, you guys feel like I'm arguing for Malayan identity because that's not my intention Right? Did, did, was, that, was that why you asked the question? Do you feel like I'm arguing for a specific identity? Yeah, I no, mean, it's quite clear you're arguing for merger. Um, yeah. Which I'm vehemently
1: against. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think most people are against, I think this right? Point yeah. In, you know, Malayan might have some traction. You know, we
0: have. You know, I'm wondering whether this Malayan identity can be without political union or how you can chat that into, say, an ASEAN identity and deal you know, mm-hmm. that bit.
1: Talk around to the ASEAN identity and you know get everyone to feel Southeast Asia yeah. and flag an and flags yeah. and whatnot. So yeah.
0: Then, yeah, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. How... Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I I see your point. Yeah. No. I totally understand skepticism about reunification. Right. It won't happen under present circumstances, and it may not be ideal ever. Right. But I, I do have, and maybe you know I am I am a hopeless romantic and idealist. Right. I mean, you don't do what I do without having some sense of idealism, you know, which may be thoroughly impractical. Um, but uh, I do believe that Singapore has, you know, so much more to offer than what, where we are limited to a small island. Um, and other countries, other states around us have so much more to offer us as well, right? And working together collectively, we could be so much more. Um, what that then identity would be doesn't have to be Malayan identity, it could be a Southeast Asian identity, it could be a Nusantara identity, you know, it could be something very different that we have absolutely no conception of today. Right? The term Southeast Asia itself is a product of World War II you know, and wasn't referred to as such before World War Two. So uh, things change, but uh, you know, my, my focus is very much on um, sovereignty and self-determination for the people of Southeast Asia, for the people of Singapore. And um, you know, specifically of ASEAN, okay, ASEAN I'm skeptical of because ASEAN's the goal of the formation of ASEAN was to prop up the regimes of Southeast Asia and remains a very, you know, nationally nation state based conception where there's an equivalency between all the governments and they you know the purpose of ASEAN is to preserve each other um, and uh, and it still has that fundamental purpose today, even though it's trying to grope for a different sort of rationale in the post Cold War world, right? In the during the Cold War, it was very clear all the ASEAN members were anti-communist, but since then they've tried different things, right? The Asian values, the you know uh, democracy, uh, sorry, not democracy, the development narrative, performance, legitimacy. You know, and then today, that uh, you know, in the early 2000s, there was attempt to to follow the sort of uh, EU kind of model and talk about mechanisms and structures. And as the EU model is, is slowly becoming, um, you know, less popular, ASEAN is groping for something else to justify its existence. But fundamentally, its existence its rationale is to prop up the member states and you know um, and maintain each other in power. So that's not really a basis to transcend nationality. Right? So my point is, I think my broader point is, you know, these identities are very arbitrary, and I feel that if we um, are able to, to build um, a process through which people can decide um, democratically about our futures, it may very well be that we reconfigure Southeast Asia very differently, uh, but, of course, these are very, um, you know, it's a, it's a huge challenge and, you know, and, yeah, it's not something easily achievable, yeah, but, you know, historically, the borders that we have today are very recent and they will change in 100, 200 years, who knows? Yeah.
2: Okay, Dr uh, yeah. Tham, I to stop you there for a while. Uh, it's it's five minutes past nine, oh. so we should formally end. Uh, I'm quite sorry about the the lateness, uh, but that's it. You guys seem like you're quite interested. I oh. hope. <laughs> 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 so we have the room for half an hour more. Uh, if you would like to stay, please stay. We need to go.